NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem. Olympic medalist John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised a fist on the podium. And basketball legend LeBron James refused to shut up and dribble. There needs to be that moment of disruption that's going to turn heads, that's going to make people stop and listen. Kneeling during the national anthem while the flag is being raised caused that disruption and caused people to listen. How do professional sports and social activism intertwine? And what impact do sports continue to have in the ongoing struggle to build a more equitable world? This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Lauren Anderson, assistant professor of sports communications here at Emerson College. Dr. Lauren Anderson, welcome to Campus on the Common. Now, Lauren, you're a professor of sports communications. As of late, we've heard a lot about sports communication and especially protest. We've seen everything in the last few years ranging from civil rights, protests relevant to the flag and the anthem, and then current day racism and police brutality. Now, I'm wondering if we look back at when Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick, the famous quarterback for the 49ers came in, there was an issue there where he was protesting police brutality. And as a result of his protest, it manifests by him taking action relevant to the national anthem. One of the questions I've always had is, how is the national anthem actually related to sports in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of people don't realize that the history of the national anthem and sports goes way, way back. There's actually records of the national anthem being played in sporting events dating back to the mid-1800s. But what really solidified that connection of the national anthem being played during every sporting event here in the U.S. was actually during World War I. So it was 1918. And it was actually Babe Ruth's last postseason appearance with the Boston Red Sox. And what happened is game one of the World Series during World War I, it was a really dark time here. And uh, the day before that first game, a bomb ripped through the Chicago Federal Building and it killed four people and injured 30. So this is the day before the World Series begins, right? And the World Series is starting in Chicago. So what happened is the game begins, Cubs, Red Sox, and the cloud is really glum. There's not a lot of excitement in the air because of everything that's happening with the war. So the seventh inning stretch comes and, you know, during sporting events, that's usually a time to get people on their feet. Back then, it was really common for there to be a band. And what happened was that there was a military band that was on hand to play. Seventh inning stretch comes, the musicians fire up the Star Spangled Banner. Well, several players at that time were actually active duty servicemen, including the Red Sox third baseman, Fred Thomas. So as soon as they started playing the Star Spangled Banner, he faced the flag and snapped to attention in military salute and the other players kind of followed suit with him. 
it made a big impression on the audience. A lot of the crowd members stood up and did the same thing. And it was widely reported about in newspapers following the game's recap. The game recap wasn't necessarily about the game itself, but about what happened in the seventh inning stretch. And throughout that World Series, it became a common occurrence. So next game, seventh inning stretch did the same thing. What happened is when the series moved over to Boston and opened up at Fenway, what they did at Fenway is they actually started the game with the Star Spangled Banner instead of doing it during the seventh inning stretch. And they coupled the playing of the song with the introduction of wounded soldiers who had received free tickets to the game. So that was the first time that the Star Spangled Banner was played at the beginning of a sporting event. And ever since that, it took off and continued to be played at the beginning of sporting events following that. Well, it's interesting that the national anthem with a connection to the military and sport has started from the get-go. But it's also interesting how people would construe what Kaepernick did as a form of protest to be disrespectful to the flag. And it's especially interesting when you consider Nate Boyer, the U.S. Army Special Forces soldier who fought two tours and suggested at one point, perhaps it's better that you don't sit on the bench that you take a knee. And last year, Nate Boyer actually came to Emerson College and we had an opportunity to talk to him. And, and we asked, how did you come ab about the thought of taking a knee? You know, what was the connection? And he said, there were two things in his mind. One was from Dr. Martin Luther King and one of the marches he was involved with. He was with a number of other religious figures and they all took a knee to pray. At the same time, in his own experience, having been to Arlington too many times to pay tribute to his fallen comrades, he would take a knee. And he thought the combination of the two would actually be a fitting form of protest that was still respectful. But somehow, that has been construed as disrespectful. How does that all happen? Why would so many people construe that as a disrespectful element when, again, it came from a veteran, a Green Beret, who suggested it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I don't think a lot of people know that backstory. And it's something that has not been widely cited in mainstream news media. So unless you look into the backstory and realize that Kaepernick actually got that idea from a Green Beret and was trying to protest in a respectful manner, then people just don't know that. And second of all, because of that tie with the national anthem and the flag and the military, so many people saw it as disrespecting the military by not standing for the national anthem. Interesting. Now, when we look at the impact that Kaepernick's had with his protest, it spread throughout the NFL. And interestingly enough, when you look at the NFL, the dominant racial group in terms of the players is African-American and they were protesting police brutality aimed specifically at African-Americans. So you look at one group saying, hey, here's the issue we have here, and then another group, largely the fans, saying, oh no, that's not the issue, it's something else, it's, it's the national anthem, it's disrespect to the, to the vets. How did that disconnect happen? I think that what a lot of people don't understand with the connection of police brutality and not standing for the anthem is Kaepernick was saying, I cannot stand for a country that deliberately marginalizes people of color, people like me, everything that's going on in our country with police brutality and African-Americans being shot left and right. 
The national anthem stands for unity of our country, of the USA. And to stand for that anthem is also standing for everything that America stands for. When America is standing behind police brutality, standing behind the shooting of people of color, it's hard to stand for that anthem that also symbolizes standing for America. And I think that people don't connect the two, but they are very much related. I'm also wondering how much of the displeasure by those that saw this kneeling as, as confrontational, how much of that is just disdain for the message of we're, we're here for sports, we're, we're not here for a political action, but yet you're taking that. What's the role of protest in sports? Well, I would argue that protest has always been a part of sport and will continue to be a part of sports culture. And to separate the two and say, as Laura Ingram from Fox News said to LeBron James, shut up and dribble, that these athletes only purpose is to go out there and play the game, I think is largely disrespectful because sports and protests have been intertwined for centuries. You cannot separate sports and politics. You just can't. One might think that it's a uniquely American phenomenon. Are there other examples where this has taken place in other countries in different times? Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about the 1968 Olympics, right, with Tommy Smith and John Carlos when they won the medals for the 200 meter dash and they stepped on the podium in their black socks and black gloves and raised their fists above their head to protest racial discrimination, which became known as the Black Power Salute. And that was one of the earliest forms of racial protest in sport on a global level, right? This is during the Olympics where there's so much civic unrest already happening around the world and they go out on a global scale on that global stadium and protest and it became a really big deal. People saw it, it was reported widely around news around the globe and, and it's still talked about today. It's interesting, you look back at the Olympics held in Mexico City in 1968, and there was an awful lot going on in this country in 1968. Like today, there was also a pandemic, but unlike today, we're involved in a war in Vietnam that was not going very well. At the same time, we had had two assassinations of political figures, Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King. We had riots that raged through 148 of our largest cities in the country. We had protests daily in Washington, D.C. You know, for your average casual observer back in 68, you might think we're about to fall into civil war. And then we come upon the Olympics, a time when we can rally around the flag quite literally, and we can cheer for our athletes. And then all of a sudden, Carlos and Smith take the podium having won their event, and they raise that fist. Now, it's interesting that they especially suffered for that activity. They, as I understand it, they couldn't get jobs for decades. You know, they were superlative athletes, but their careers essentially came to an end because of that political act. We still talk about it today. The history books make slight mention, but they do mention it when you look at civil rights. But here's what's especially interesting to me, at least. As much as in the day it was a total shock, it was you know, appalling to most Americans that they would take this activity. If you go to San Diego State, there indeed is a statue for Carlos and Smith, and essentially honoring the bravery they had to take the steps they did to bring attention to this cause, which was the lack of, of civil rights, something you could argue we're seeing today. I guess one of my questions now is, it would seem that we do indeed have a history of protest in sports. 
have we ever seen a time when we've seen so much protest in sports instead of just the football or track and field in the Olympics, now we're seeing it go across all the major sports. What do you think's happening here? Is this a social movement? Are we waking up as a country to the issue at hand? Is this a temporary phenomenon? Where do we go from here? I think it's a, a few of those things that you mentioned. Are we waking up as a country? I think we are, and I hope we are. I think with the recent media attention towards the Black Lives Matter movement, that there really is this pivotal moment right now in our history where people are paying attention, people are listening. And you can couple that with the global pandemic, whatever it was that made people really start listening with the shooting of Breonna Taylor, with all of these recent shootings of people of color, people are finally listening. And athletes are seeing it now as something that they can no longer remain silent about, something that they need to stand in solidarity around, especially because so many professional athletes in our four major sports leagues here in the US are people of color. And we see them unifying, we see them standing together, we see them protesting by canceling games, by not playing certain days, by saying to their fans, look, you need to listen now because we will not stand for this any longer. We won't stand for police brutality. We won't stand for shooting of people of color and wake up. We all need to listen. Why is it that fans are reacting more to our sports stars versus the celebrities from Hollywood? That's a good question. So I think that uh, there are a lot of people who follow sports and who turn to sports who don't necessarily follow politics. So you're reaching a whole other culture right now. You're reaching a whole other fan base of people who can be a part of this conversation, who might not be turning on the presidential debates, who might not be following Fox News or CNN News or whatever news outlet, but they're watching sports. We know that so many people turn to sports for so many different reasons, cognitive reasons, behavioral reasons, emotional reasons, why people watch sports on TV, why people listen to sports on the radio, why people are going to specific sports websites to get their sports news. And you have a whole different audience here that it becomes an even bigger conversation when athletes are now standing up and speaking about this issue. And all of these sports fans, they have no choice but to listen. So if I understand it correctly, it sounds like sports has a psychological capability to connect with us more so than other forms of entertainment. Is that a fair statement there? Yes, absolutely. So how does that work? Why are we so enamored with sports and how, how does it affect us in such a way that we'll actually follow the lead of a sports figure? So I sort of mentioned already that there's three main reasons why people watch sports. One is cognitive reasons. And that could be anything from learning, where you enjoy learning about the game, to aesthetic appeals. There's behavioral reasons, meaning that we see sports as a release. We turn to sports for companionship and group affiliation with others. There's the economic component. Some people turn into sports because of economic reasons, whether they're betting on sports, whether they have family who's actually earning money through sports. And then the fourth component of that behavioral appeal is family. Sports are oftentimes a big component in family dynamics. I know for me, I grew up in the 90s and 
we would watch the Chicago Bulls play. We would get out our TV trays and all have family dinner and all watch the Bulls together. And it was the only time we were allowed to watch TV as a family while we were eating dinner. And I grew up with sports as a huge part of my family environment. So many other people do as well. Now, when we turn to the third reason, which is the emotional appeal of sports, that to me is the biggest reason here, that biggest psychological connection that we have with sports figures, with teams, because of the way that sports make us feel. Sports provide entertainment for us. They provide self-esteem. So when our teams win, it directly correlates with how we feel. My Chicago Bears won yesterday. I'm feeling really good today. I'm happy. A lot of people feel the opposite when their team loses. It really affects us. And then there's that escape part. So sports are an escape from reality. A lot of people see sports as an escape from the stress and the drama of their everyday lives of work. And that's also kind of where this politics ties in as well, where when people say shut up and dribble and sports should not relate to politics, it's because they're tuning to sports as an escape from politics, from that stress, from that drama. And there's people who don't want to see politics intertwined with sports. So all of these reasons are why people are so attached to sports, sports figures, why we turn to sports and all of that. When you consider the platform that sports enables for these amazing athletes, one would also ask, why, why do they choose to do something on the sideline or on the bench? Why not, you know, after the event at the press conference, say something there or work through a nonprofit? I guess if I'm to play devil's advocate, so sort of look at this from all sides, why is it that athletes have to use sports as a form of protest? because it has to be a disruption in order for people to listen. If Colin Kaepernick went and did an interview with an ESPN reporter and spoke about his feelings towards racial injustice in the United States, it would not have had the impact that it did by him kneeling during the national anthem during a major sporting event, there has to be that disruption for people to listen. If you look at where the Black Lives Matter movement is right now, in American society, there are people who are upset because of the protests, because of the looting, because of what's happening. But at the same time, people are finally listening. So there has to be a disruption in order for something this big to finally lead towards change, right? If he just went on air and started talking to a reporter, yes, some people might tune in, but for the most part, nothing's going to change. There has to be a big event where people are going to say, all right, this is a really big deal. Maybe we should start listening. Maybe we should try to figure out what's going on where he found that it was so important to not stand for the national anthem and the flag that there's something that we need to listen. When you consider sports as a platform for protest, I've heard people say for many of the athletes, this is the only opportunity, this is the only venue at their disposal. That in the past, many have tried other forms of expression and communication, but they've, you know, their efforts have literally fallen on deaf ears. Now, other forms of protest I'm aware of occurred last year out, out in the northwest corner between Seattle and Portland had to do with uh, Major League Soccer, that there were fan clubs for both teams and they're both very much in the anti-fascist camp. They would come to these games and granted these are rival teams, but the fan clubs would come together and jointly participate in anti-fascist activity by waving flags around. 
at one point, one of the soccer clubs said, no, no more political paraphernalia. The anti-fascist fan clubs protested that, well, you're still allowing Make America Great hats and, and things like that. So they thought this, was, this wasn't fair. And they had a protest. For 30 minutes, the two fan clubs turned their back to the pitch during a game. Now, so that was certainly noticed by the ownership, who then took even more draconian steps, I understand, to eliminate all political discourse at a field. But it got the point across. Now, this is Major League Soccer, which, in my humble opinion, isn't as prevalent in terms of viewership as NBA, NFL, etc. But it's growing and growing and growing. When you look overseas, we're starting to see more activity on the sidelines, excuse me, in, in the fan base regarding protest, using... FC Barcelona as an example, and I'm, I'm biased, full disclosure, our Emerson sister school is Blancarna in Barcelona, and I like that school, and I love that football team, but when you look at FC Barcelona, they're unique compared to many other football clubs in that they've got a long-standing history involved with politics. Going way back before World War II, there was a case where the British naval soccer team came to Barcelona to play FC Barcelona, and Franco came to watch the game. And instead of playing the Spanish national anthem, they played and saluted the British national anthem. Franco was pretty upset. So later on, when the Civil War happened, he took his vengeance out upon that soccer team. Now flash forward decades from then, when you look at FC Barcelona, they are essentially more than just a soccer club. And it's actually part of their logo, Mezque un club, more than a club. They're actually the embodiment of the psyche of, of Catalan, of the province of Catalan, many people will say, that they've got soccer, they've got handball, hockey, field hockey, basketball, any, I think rugby as well, any number of sports, and both co-ed. So they have this professional team, but they have this entire sports network of professional and semi-professional going all the way into youth leagues throughout the entire province. That would be as if in Boston, the craft group would get together with the Red Sox and the Celtics and the Bruins and run all of that and on top of that, run all the high school and youth programs. Now, when you look at FC Barcelona on a regional level or a provincial level, instead of having coordinators, they call their coordinators senators, and they'll represent specific towns and communities within that entire province. So it's interesting how they've, they've taken the idea of governance, included this in, into their, their club, so that when the protest issue of independence comes up, you've got this entire sports organization with multiple levels through multiple sports permeating throughout the entire province, pushing that idea, that political idea, that protest idea of we want independence, we want autonomy from Spain. So, you know, it, it's fascinating. We're, we're looking at individual protests and sometimes the entire team will back the individual that brings that protest to the team versus what we see in Catalan where we have an entire organization set up to A, play sports, but also to represent the people in their fight to gain independence. I'm wondering, do you think something like what's happened in FC Barcelona could one day happen here in the US where a team actually stands for a political ideology along with actually playing a sport? Or will we maintain this is a sport, it's a form of uh, fan engagement, it's, uh, it's escapism, and occasionally we might have a political activity involved? What are your thoughts? I would agree with the latter. I don't ever see the United States stepping to that level. 
as international soccer. Like I said, there's so many reasons why we turn to sports. And a big part of that is that entertainment value, that escapism that we kind of talked about. And right now, I personally think it's great that sports leagues are paying attention to the Black Lives Matter movement, to social activism, and that they are standing up for this cause. But I see this as being very fleeting, very temporary. I don't see that becoming a part of our sports culture here in the United States. So right now, so if I understand this right now, because we have so many social challenges occurring, that sports and protests seem to go hand in hand. But assuming things settle and a form of social justice occurs, that we'll get back to the, to the old, I don't wanna say good old days, we'll get back to the days where sports were just sports minus the protests. I think we're at a point right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, with police brutality, with the shootings of people of color that sports leagues cannot ignore what's happening. And in order for TV ratings to continue to rise, in order for fans to continue to support these teams, these teams and players and leagues need to do something. They need to stand up and show that they're standing in solidarity with this movement. If they didn't, it would be a PR disaster, right? And uh, people would backlash against the teams, against the leagues. But like I said, I think this is a very unique moment in our history. I don't foresee this as being something that continues in the future where sports leagues take even more stands on the political realm. When we look at our professional sports, they sort of set the pace for college, for high school and youth sports. Will we see a day where college, high school youth sports imitate professional sports in terms of taking a position or becoming more socially active? What are your thoughts with that? I think that would be great <laughs> if that happened, but given the situation of sports in the collegiate setting, I don't see that happening. Sports are a big money maker for schools, especially when you're talking about D1 schools. And that comes from so many elements, but one of those elements is alumni, right? You have alumni donors, you have a lot of money coming in. I did my doctorate at Florida State University and the booster club, the alumni would donate a ton of money for Florida State football, so much so that my last year there, they were able to redo the stadium and put in special boxes for the boosters because of the amount of money that they donate towards the university. When you tie in politics and activism, you're going to piss a lot of people off. So in doing so, if colleges were to take a stand against a lot of these things, I would see a big backlash from alumni, from donors, which would in turn influence a lot of the organization because of the money that comes in, that I don't ever see that happening in collegiate sports. Sad but true. I might be a bleeding heart for uh, a social, social cause, but don't mess with my football team. It makes you wonder about people's priorities. Dr. Anderson, in our remaining time, I'm wondering if you could give our audience three takeaways. Sure, so uh, three takeaways. I think the first is that uh, sports and protest have been intertwined for a long time, for centuries. This is not a new thing. This is not a new phenomenon. Sports and social activism have been going on for centuries, and uh, we're not in a new space because of what Kaepernick did. 
The second thing I would take away is that uh, people often ask, when's the right time, right? We talk about when Kaepernick decided to kneel, how it was at the beginning of a game, how it was during the national anthem. And people often ask, was that the right time? When we're talking about racial injustice in our country, there is no right time. There needs to be that moment of disruption that I talked about that's going to turn heads, that's going to make people stop and listen. And as I mentioned earlier, him kneeling during the national anthem while the flag is being raised caused that disruption and caused people to listen. Whereas if you were just going to do an interview with a reporter from ESPN, people aren't going to listen. There is no right time when it comes to injustices. And I think that it absolutely was the right time. I think the third takeaway would be that there's very specific reasons why we like sports, why we turn to sports in media, why we watch sports on TV. And it's because of uh, these connections that we form with players, with teams, with organizations, because of this emotional connection that we form. And yes, there's a lot of other aspects that go into it where sports are entertainment, sports are an escape from reality for us. But at the same time, we form a psychological connection with the teams we watch. And if we have uh, players who are going out there and who are fighting for these great causes, we're going to listen as sports fans because we connect with these players. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Dr. Lauren Anderson, Assistant Professor of Sports Communications here at Emerson College. Dr. Anderson completed her PhD in Communications at Florida State University, where she created a multidisciplinary program of study between communications and sports management. Her research and publications focus largely on media representations of gender and race in sports, as well as the ways in which media shapes social and cultural values and produces dominant ideologies. I'm your host, Mark Brody. The executive producer is Dean Raul Rice. Lucas Poyser is our producer and chief engineer. Oliver Glass is our associate producer. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College's School of Communication. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.